0: This is Energy Voice Out Loud, leading the global energy conversation. I'm Alistair Thomas, and welcome to our podcast. I'm joined this week by our Asia-Pacific editor, Damon Evans, and digital journalist, Hamish Penman. Uh, Welcome both. Not feeling overly chuffed as we record today, due to various um, World Cup upsets. I had Argentina in my sweeper, and it was only a game... You wouldn't really expect them to lose to Saudi Arabia, would you? Did you guys see this earlier in the week?
1: I did, yeah. It was uh, quite the upset. People talking about it being the um, the biggest World, up- World Cup upset of all time. So I think you can count yourself pretty hard done by there in the uh, in the sweepstakes. It's not all over, of course, but... Uh, it's disgusting. I'm disgusted. It's not the best of starts. <laughs> Spain, who won the World Cup in 2010, lost their opening game. So we'll take some solace from that.
0: Yeah, I know, but they're... They've chosen violence this week. Costa Rica, my goodness. Uh, yeah, not not. Damon, are you watching the World Cup over there? Are you uh, following things closely? I'm not. I, I saw that
2: that headline, and um, and the taxi driver this morning told me about England and Iran, and and he's a big England fan apparently. But um, that's about the the extent of my. Uh, my coverage
0: <laughs> well uh yeah well you've had well, you've missed some uh, absolute um belters actually some uh, not um Canada last night though they were just trying against uh, Belgium trying so hard, and they just could not finish, but uh there were some real upsets, not just uh yeah not not just uh, my argentinian team but uh Japan beating germany um but uh, but yeah, I, I digress clearly i'm not winning that sleeper, so we'll just move on um this week. We've had a couple of important pieces of news on North Sea decommissioning, including some updated figures on the size of the multi-billion pound prize. So, uh, Hamish, why don't you bring us up to speed there?
1: Yeah, OUK, um published this week its decommissioning insight report that's to coincide with its um, St. Andrew's Decon conference, of which I'm sure we'll hear a little bit more about later on. Um, it was filled with tasty morsels of plenty to, to wet the supply chain's appetite. The two main stats from it that I think are worth uh, remembering—not um, just so that we can check them against reality when we're still here in many years to come—but uh, the first one being that more than 2,000 North Sea wells are due to be decommissioned over the next decade. Um, for those trying to do some swift mental arithmetic, that's an average of just shy of four a week, um, about 200 a year to achieve that feat the oil and gas industry will need to fork out around about 20 billion pounds or so during that period Mm. um a large amount of that is forecast to come in the next two to or next three to four years sorry um during which there will be and a quote a surge in activity with many more wells due to be plugged and abandoned um that sort of rhetoric does seem to hold true especially with a number of the people we spoke to for our recent decom supplements who were really pinning a, a lot of hope on the next uh, the next couple of years to deliver this uh, this boom i think we call it that's um has been rather long awaited um other things from the report 59 jackets to go during that period 58 top sides as well um according to predictions i was trying to wrap my brain to think which jacket is still standing without a top side but i couldn't quite work it out so if you're listening at home please do get in touch if you know the one <laughs> um as far as the report goes the Kind of main concern that came from it, um, and this again is something that we've heard from a number of figures within the decommissioning industry, is that competition to secure vessels, competition to secure port capacity and people skills as well for decommissioning is going to be pretty challenging, not least because offshore wind is really picking up. These projects have long lifespans, um, especially compared to decommissioning projects. Therefore, they've just got a bigger certainty and greater pull for. Four ports, for harbours and, and for, for vessels as well. Um, to mitigate this, the industry will need to do that famous C word that we've all heard a bit too much rhetoric about in recent weeks and perhaps not a great deal to show for it. Uh, other stumbling blocks, windfall tax, obviously, is quickly becoming, remember last year where we couldn't have a podcast without talking about Cambo? We now can't physically have a
0: <laughs> it does feel like we're getting there. And Hamish, hey, I really tried. This 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 week we've not lined up any windfall tax chat. You've got you've just gone and done it. How dare you? No, Sorry,
1: just... we we should have we should have collaborated on that. Ah uh,
0: collaboration. So
1: that's I mean, it's gonna eat companies' profits. Obviously, that's the nature of it. Um, and as we saw during COVID, it's usually decommissioning that is the uh, the first to face the chop when companies are dishing out cash for, for projects um i don't want to speak for them as well but i'd imagine the supply chain also has a degree of reticence about these figures given the huge decom promises and forecasts that have been made many many times um with little really to show for it at this stage and much of what there has been as we've touched on plenty of times is that the, um what there has been has gone further afield and I did there was a comment in our LinkedIn where somebody had underneath the uh the headline of the the wells and the and the amount to be spent somebody said I'm pretty sure Energy Royce reported the exact same stats 10 years ago it <laughs> did, did make me laugh actually
0: uh well that's interesting
1: yeah, yeah I don't know if that's factually correct but yeah, it made me chuckle but I mean it's often kind of asked why will it be different this time around for the supply chain for spend and that's um, what is there to quell fears people always point to to the NSTA and the fact that they are crapping the, cracking the whip sorry to, to get these uh, sways of suspended wells and the like uh, taken care of which is good to hear and I mean hopefully there has been this uh, this awakening now that projects can't be keep being put off but the problem there being as I'm sure you'll tell us Alistair is that the NSTA and I quote is to be moving the goalposts on on decom targets in the last week as well.
0: Yeah, yeah, it's it's interesting. Uh, that was the other kind of big thing that came out of this week in terms of decom. Uh, maybe just quickly. Yeah, I think I think the moving targets, and you're actually right to bring up the windfall tax because obviously companies have got um, reduced amounts of uh, capital to spend, and there is some speculation now that they will prioritize uh, development rather than decommissioning because they can get a return on that investment via the windfall tax. And therefore, things could move on. Yeah. Um, But yes, you're you're right to say, Hamish, the the NSTA have decided to uh, change the targets for decommissioning. Um, So... We do want decommissioning costs down. The UK government pays rebates on decommissioning. It's not a subsidy, um, as many media outlets have put out. But nonetheless, it's money coming out of the Treasury coffers at the end of the day. So that means that companies need to try to get decommissioning costs down to mitigate that. So you know, we see these big spending numbers, but in actual fact, what we want is for them to be cut so it's not impacting the taxpayer. So the, the industry had this target to reduce... Uh, the bill by 35% from nearly £60 billion pounds in 2017 down to £39 billion by the end of 2022. That's based on 2016 prices. And as of last year, they've managed to get to 25% cut, which is substantial, but it's not that 35% um, target now. They've got until the end of this year to do that. Uh, the pace has been glacial in the past couple of years, so it looks very unlikely they're going to make manage another 10% cut in a matter of months, but you know, we shall see. But basically, they're at the end of that five-year period now, and they've decided they're going to set up a new target. Um, some accusations, as you say, Hamish, of people of, of the goalposts being moved, but the, the NSTA says, no, we've decided to change it now um, as we hit the end of this five-year period because we've got more accurate data. So they're saying um, they've got a more clear picture on just you know not just only you know things like contract prices not based on 2016 prices but you know 2021 2022 also a much clearer picture of the amount of oil and gas assets to be taken out of the North Sea. So based on that, they're saying under the new target, the industry's total bill uh, right now or in 2023 will be 37 billion pounds, not 45 billion, which it was as of 2021. And they're aiming to reduce that by 10% down to $33.3 billion. So basically, it's a huge chunk they've cut off of that overall target. And they say they've got better data to support that uh, as accurate rather than um, just moving the goalposts. But we do have some critics who uh, are saying otherwise. Uh, but um, that's where we stand. You know, interesting to see the, the picture for decom. Uh, maybe as an aside on that person's comment, though, I think anyone paying particularly close attention might have seen a similar £20 billion figure for the next decade, cited in an NSTA report published earlier this year. Um, So we'll maybe leave that aside. Um, But it is interesting to see the size of the prize. What do you make of all that, Damon? It's a a burgeoning market in Australia and Southeast Asia as well. Decommissioning is a, a lot going on in the North Sea as well. But another market for for it to pick up and
2: yeah I mean th- those figures are mind-boggling I'm I'm still trying to process them um I think in Asia I just had a quick look we we reported in Southeast Asia by 2030 more than 200 offshore fields are, are expected to stop producing and total decom costs estimated to range from 30 billion to as much as 100 billion so you know again not a lot of clarity there but big numbers basically and Indonesia Decommission their first offshore platform uh recently we had the news last week and we uh, i think that the first one was successfully done with help from korea and i spoke to the upstream regulator today and i said you know we'd like to find out a bit more about the decommissioning going on here and he said um yeah we've got 100 platforms but we haven't got any money to decommission them so um that's Interesting. But yeah, big opportunities in Southeast Asia and Australia. Yeah, you rightly said massive stuff going on in Australia. A lot of Scottish companies, I think, getting involved and getting set up down in Perth. So exciting times.
0: Exciting times indeed. Okay. So, yes, 2,000 wells to be PA'd in the North Sea. So, next we'll hear why that's potentially good news for sustainable energy.
1: Energy Voice investigates and reports on what matters in global energy, helping sector leaders understand the geopolitical and economic factors underpinning current events, and giving them a view on what's coming over the horizon. Each year, 3.4 million professionals use Energy Voice as a trusted source of breaking news and insight. Subscribers to Energy Voice receive unlimited access to the Energy Voice website, including premium content, free and discounted special reports and additional content, free access to the Energy Voice live app featuring a personalised feed and priority access to Energy Voice events. For a 30-day free trial subscription to the Energy Voice website and app, visit energyvoice.com slash subscriptions. Join the global energy conversation with Energy Voice.
0: Yeah, so uh, as you said, Hamish, I was at the lovely lush Fairmont Hotel at St. Andrews uh, this week. No golfing, I'm afraid, um, but for the annual DCOM conference. Uh, And one of the more interesting items to come out of that uh, was from the NZTC, the Net Zero Technology Centre, which is based in Aberdeen. And they're planning to create a a national geothermal innovation centre based somewhere in the northeast of Scotland, uh, which would be the the go-to hub uh, globally for geothermal technology. So for those that don't know what that is, Geothermal is effectively a sustainable energy source it takes its heat from underground and converts that into electricity. It's part of the energy mix in a number of countries like, uh, like Iceland and the Philippines. I gather it isn't particularly expensive once it's up and running. Uh, the, this, the amount of power generated seems modest compared to other forms, you might argue. But um, ultimately, a large part of the problem seems to be the upfront costs, exploration and drilling. But if you've got a stock of wells, say 2,000 in the North Sea, for example, that you could repurpose, you could see how there's some joined-up potential there. So the NZTC wants to create this center, three sides of it, a solution center to you know, pilot for pilot technology, a knowledge hub, which will kind of share lessons and create this kind of bespoke regulation to set up geothermal in the UK and abroad, and an accelerator program, which is akin to what we've had in other parts of the the NZTC, whereby they basically scale up new starts through grants and uh, mentoring programs and things of that nature. So quite exciting stuff. And they reckon that geothermal could account for 5% of our power demand in the UK by 2030. So not long at all. By, By 2050, they think that could increase to 20%. So substantial kind of oil and gas industry crossover potential there. Still questions on how it might get funded and what have you, but there is a plan here, so interested to see where it goes. Interesting
1: you mentioned that 20% figure there by 2050, because 20% is often the um, the figure that's given as a baseload amount that the UK energy system needs to keep itself ticking over. And there is this discussion at the moment about will it be nuclear that supplies that. I saw Ian Blackford recently saying it will be tidal that will do that as well. So I think geothermal, this just seems to be a very good, many technologies trying to stake their claim to be that baseload because that's almost a golden ticket because you'll just, uh, you you will likely get a lot of support for it should you be the uh, the one that people chose. I mean, it's not that well established in the UK, I don't believe, though. I think there is... There is a project going on down in Cornwall, I think, a geothermal one. We I wrote about it a couple of years ago with Ecotricity, who are Dale Vince's company, who's the kind of renewable energy pioneer and more interestingly, chairman of Forest Green Rovers Football Club. Um <laughs> specific knowledge. Yeah. Well he he came on the pod a few years ago actually. Um so friend of the Friend of the Pod.
0: Oh yeah, 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 yeah. I remember now. Oh yeah.
1: Yeah. So they signed an off take PPA agreement for um for the geothermal energy down in um in Cornwall. Yeah. So I, uh, it seems like there are some some baby sets, but it, certainly in terms of announcements, there there are many, many more in the last six months or so than there have been in however many years prior to that.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I think uh, that's a fair assessment. Geothermal has been uh, growing an in interest in the UK. I'd say we had the first geothermal conference in Aberdeen this year, I think. And there has been some oil and gas players showing interest. Um, who have we reported on? Uh, well, actually, dominantly recently has been this company, I want to pronounce it as Serify. I've heard Ryan, who's spoken to them, call them Seraphie do write in. Um, But they've been teaming up with Enquest and the NZTC on a geothermal test at the Magnus uh, oil field in the North Sea. We've had that same company sign an exclusive deal with Halliburton, so a big player there, on uh, well support for this idea of repurposing oil and gas uh, wells in the UK and the US and They've been quite vocal about the opportunity here for heating homes and, you know, heating things like like hospitals. And, and indeed, if this NZTC thing gets up and running, the ultimate aim would it be for it to be powered by geothermal energy. So as with anything, I think there's still a bit to go. It doesn't sound, as I say, like huge amounts of power per well. And obviously there's a cost associated there if they're going to be developing any new wells for geothermal. But as I say, you can see why... Uh, repurposing in particular would be attractive from the, the energy transition perspective. Um, yeah, I don't know. Uh, Damon, I, I don't know how, to what extent you've come across geothermal before. Is that anything that's made any kind of noise in your part of the world?
2: Yeah, I mean, it's, it's big over here, particularly where I am in Indonesia, a big volcanic region. Oh. Um, when I saw your headline of your article, I was scratching my head. I, I didn't know the UK had geothermal Potential, or even had geothermal projects, so it's quite interesting. Ah, okay. Um, but Indonesia is actually the second largest producer of geothermal energy behind the the US, and apparently has the world's largest geothermal energy
0: potential. Sounds like they're the center of the world for geothermal. Then I don't know what. Yeah, I, I mean
2: Chevron <laughs> used to have pro- geothermal projects here, but they they walked away when. The government wasn't really playing ball with them, and now I spoke Chevron the other week. Told me they want to come back to geothermal if the incentives are right. So yeah, I mean Indonesia, maybe there can be some tie-up with this uh, this hub in Aberdeen and, um, and and geothermal in Indonesia. There's already becoming quite a, a link between Indonesia and the UK with these uh, latest climate deals and going on. But yeah, Philippines as well. You mentioned they have a bit of geothermal. Um yeah so a lot of potential in Indonesia certainly.
0: Yeah that's that's interesting. I mean I guess I'm I'm Aberdeen I don't know whether it's selfishly trying to style itself in this fashion um but you know there, there is this incentive I suppose to try to find some way to decarbonize and change an image of uh what has for so long been touted the oil and gas capital of Europe um they're tr- obviously trying to shift that towards more sustainable energy sources, but uh, yeah, I wouldn't want to necessarily call it the geothermal capital of the world. If uh, you know, certainly other countries have a better um, a better claim. Uh, it certainly, sounds like Indonesia and the Philippines and the like, uh, and and Iceland indeed um, might have something to say about that. But at the same time, it seems like the intent is good. Um, you know, an opportunity for workforce to transfer—that's a, a big issue here. Um, and uh, yeah, if, if regulation can get up and running to, to make this a, a more sustainable way of getting our power, um, then I guess we should be all for it. But, uh, but yeah. Okay, well, we'll leave that hot geothermal action there for now. Uh, and next up, it's Damon's. Uh, Damon's with us for Indonesia's move away from coal into natural gas.
2: As well as these regular weekly news roundups on Energy Voice Out Loud, you'll also find lots of subject-specific box sets in the same feed, and I'm excited to be the anchor for one called the Megawatt Hour. Produced in paid partnership with BDO, the Megawatt Hour brings together experts from across the energy industry and across the world to examine the challenges and the opportunities of energy storage. As more of the grid gets its power from intermittent renewables, energy storage technologies, and batteries in particular, are going to be an increasingly important feature of our infrastructure. Over the course of 10 monthly episodes, we'll be diving deep into the tech, the policy, and the challenges of building out energy storage to help you better understand its opportunities wherever you work in the energy sector. Look out for episodes of the Megawatt Hour in Energy Voice Out Loud, as well as lots of other special episodes wherever you get your podcasts.
0: Okay, Damon, so I know we're talking national spending here, but Indonesia seeking 179 Billion for upstream investment. That seems, uh, that seems a tall order.
2: Yeah, you heard it right, 179 billion. That's what the, the government estimates they need to meet their 2030 oil and gas production targets. Um, they're aiming for 1 million barrels per day of oil production and 12 billion cubic feet per day of gas in 2030. Um, oil output in 2021 was just under 700 billion barrels per day, to put that in perspective. Uh, down from a peak of near 1.6 million barrels per day in the early 90s. Uh, gas production has uh, not been falling off so badly. It's kind of stable at around 6.6 billion cubic feet per day, but they're still looking to double that basically by 2030. Um, so quite a tall order, and especially as they've been kind of scaring away upstream <laughs> investment for the past eight years or or the major players that were you know big IOCs that were prominent in Indonesia's oil and gas sector for the past 30 40 years and then also at the same time we've got the the pivot away from coal coming into play uh, we spoke about this a couple of weeks ago on the pod prior to the the G20 B20 descending on Bali which they all packed up and left last week um but not before president Biden and Indonesia's president Joko Widodo announced a a climate finance deal providing 20 billion that's designed to help Indonesia pivot away from coal, and that's according to a U.S. Treasury Department official, the s- largest single climate finance transaction ever. So that that's been making the news. Um, there's a lot of hoo-ha around Indonesia energy transition and encouraging mining for metals uh, you know nickel etc and bringing EV supply chains here shutting down coal fired power Um, all the bankers were rubbing their hands with glee we had the Bloomberg New Energy Finance Summit on the sidelines of this talking about 3 trillion of investment required for the energy transition it's all quite convoluted I don't know what's going on (laughs) lots of money being mentioned and you've said complicated (laughs) yeah. (laughs) um but yeah so basically now indonesia which was building out a lot of coal-fired power plant capacity had this huge pipeline of it in development is now starting to rewind that so natural gas is um considered vital in indonesia's energy transition and um that's um that's that's why they're looking to attract investors so if you know anyone any any anyone in aberdeen want to come over and invest got 179 billion dollars send them indonesia's way
0: <laughs> I don't think ian woods got 179 billion so i don't know if <laughs> we're not, i don't think we're gonna find anybody with that kind of cash and they need to spend it on union street if they're going to do it but then but anyway yeah um yeah it, it's it is an interesting question about you know raising funds for this and i guess perceptions of it because i suppose. I don't. I don't know. There, there will no doubt be some people who will ask, "Well, can they do it without oil and gas? Can they bypass it and go straight to I don't know, electrification and hydrogen and what have you?" I'm sure that'd be much more expensive than what we're talking about now. But in terms of mustering finance for what ultimately is a fossil fuel enterprise, albeit gas being cleaner than coal, it it does seem like a, a tall order. I mean, the the stuff with Biden you mentioned there seems pretty promising. I mean. Can they make up the difference um, with, with everything that's been going on around COP27 and what have you? Does the international community have the appetite, I guess, would be some of the, the big questions, which you were already pondering there, Damon, so I'm kind of re-putting re- re- it to you. But uh, yeah, do you have the answers?
2: <laughs> well, I mean, th- there's an estimate that, that Indonesia, which is Southeast Asia's biggest economy, needs $600 billion to phase out coal-based electricity in favour of a grid powered by renewables um but yeah there's a lot of questions around the whole deal um there's an organization called 350.org i don't know if you guys have heard of them but they seem to be um
0: yeah i think so yeah, yeah.
2: pushing the uh they don't yeah. like fossil fuels basically and uh, they had an open ed in al Jazeera saying you know there's growing concern that the just energy transition partnership could serve as a cover for a pivot back to gas uh, so they don't really uh, like the whole idea of gas in Indonesia. I don't know what they're suggesting that Indonesia should really run its country on, if they're not going to use coal and if they're not going to use gas. Straight, you know, they need to, to rewind coal. They need to use gas while they transition to things like geothermal, nuclear, renewable energy. Um, also, if they transition to gas, then the plants can be um there's a hedge for you know That could be used for green hydrogen ammonia later on and and, and that's all kind of in the pipeline but at, at the conference i've been at today and yesterday there's a clear clear desire that you know, or a clear message that gas is going to be essential to to the energy transition so i think that's the reality to think otherwise you, you can't just replace
1: coal straight away with other sources of energy so um yeah, it, it's a difficult one. I thought that was that quite good uh, quote in your piece, statement. I think it was something along the lines of Indonesia is uh, facing up to the hard truce or something that uh, the rest of the world seems to be um, burying that, that gas is actually quite quite useful when it comes to transitioning because it's a damn lot Dan, Dan cleaner than uh, than coal and than oil as well. You speak about trying to raise the cash for this. Um, I wonder if there might be some big companies in our part of the world, Alisa, that might be looking further afield given recent tax changes that might find Indonesia rather appealing um, <laughs> to invest some of their cash in, and especially if the rhetoric is a bit friendlier towards um, towards the production of…
0: I- I'm going to get a windfall tax bingo out for this podcast, I swear. We're gonna- <laughs>
1: <laughs> but it's it's there is all that… I mean, the main kind of hang-up on the windfall tax seems to be that it will drive investment elsewhere and people don't look that far they kind of look at um other countries in europe and think oh they might companies might look to relocate there but if if these noises are coming from indonesia that is pretty favorable towards gas at stretch and then a lot of these are global businesses anyway there's no reason why they couldn't look even
0: further afield. yeah if, i mean if i was a betting man uh Harbour Energy and an inquest might be ones that might look at that. That's not with any prior knowledge of anything, but uh, just from the noises that they've been putting out. But uh, but yeah, it's interesting.
2: Yeah, I think you know that that's a good point. I think and Indonesia needs to recognise. So at the conference today, there's like Harbour Energy and Repsol, which are the two prominent players in Indonesia that are actually developing something along with BP as well. BP is quite big here, and they said, look, you know, if you read, really, Indonesia needs to improve its terms and conditions radically it ranks one well, of the least competitive in the oil and gas league table of where to attract investment um and they said look you know in far eastern indonesia where there's potential for giant fields if you want people to come just say have 99 percent take for the contractor one percent for the government you know your benefit from people come in they find gas reduces your import bill etc and then more people want to come to the to develop anyway but i think the point is they're very friendly to investment in oil and gas they just need to set the terms now radically change them to encourage investors to come and and park their money here i mean the government rhetoric is certainly yeah gas is good
0: gas is good okay uh well uh, damon i don't think i've got time to ask you about the man you fell out with on twitter or or something like that actually no i do go on oh, Tim, no. very quickly <laughs>
2: I didn't fall out of him. I just observed him. Going back to this climate colonialism thing, I'll read what he said. So this guy, um, he's an advisor to the U.S. Treasury and Janet Yellen, and um, she must be the head of Treasury these days, um, on climate. And he, he, he took a picture of himself next to his jet plane, Exhausted after flying back from Indonesia and uh, announcing the historic 20 billion partnership for Indonesia's just energy transition. I just found it kind of ironic, and so did a lot of people on Twitter, that he was trying to encourage countries to move away from fossil fuels. and He's boasting about being on, you know, he's basically taken a picture of himself by a jet plane and um, showed a kind of lack of uh, emotional intelligence. But, um, hmm.
1: Yeah, what to say. We have we've fallen out with Total on, on on Twitter this week as well. So we're just picking all our battles. What
2: happened with Total?
0: Ed 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 Reed's getting in trouble. No, yeah, really? Yeah. Bad boy. He paraphrased he paraphrased something.
2: That's why he's been banished from the
0: pod today. <laughs> yeah, that's why. Yeah, no, he's 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 hidden away somewhere now. Yeah, he's gonna be in jail for the next little while, but we'll dig him out later. You know, he'll be all right. He'll be all right. Uh no, no, it was all fine. Um but yeah, no, um Twitter is a sewer. And on that note That is it for this latest episode of Energy Voice Out Loud. Thank you to Hamish and Damon for joining me. I've been Alistair Thomas, and thanks for listening.
2: Out Loud is the podcast from Energy Voice, leading the global energy conversation. Bookmark and subscribe to energyvoice.com